the problem and the reason why we'll never get the whole community to endorse and embrace this fact is because most of them are hacks. And in the end, all of those guys will be a commodity. That's Anthony Johnson, founder of Johnson Firm and CEO of Stellium. And I think that's the situation right now is like there's this disruption, there's this fear. But if you can actually rise above that and say, the only way that big change happens, big opportunity comes, is when the whole world gets turned upside down. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Anthony Johnson to discuss the unique combination of data, technology, and disruption, how to position your law firm to attract outside capital, and his perspective on the future of law. ABS is out. You can argue all you want, it's done. They have a way in, it's legal in Arizona, regardless of whether it should be or not, or the ethical rules, like Wall Street doesn't care, there's too much money. We all know that. Let's all back up and stop trying to lawyer this up. That's an excuse not to pay attention. There's too many $100 billion funds now that are now completely committed to going after the space. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Anthony Johnson is a disruptive voice in the legal industry. As the founder of Johnson Firm and the CEO of Stellium, he's known as someone who consistently challenges the status quo. In fact, I interviewed AJ on one of the very first episodes of the Game Changing Attorney podcast, and I began this conversation by asking him how his thinking has evolved since then. Yeah, I think uh, it, was, it was the beginning of COVID, I remember now, because I remember we were all talking about uh, this new attention on technology, right, coming in because of all the need for it. Couldn't go outside anymore, you know? Uh, you were talking about buying a building like a crazy person. I was talking about crazy things like a crazy person. I mean, we thought the world was going to end, so. <laughs> yeah. At the time, I think it was like this notion that technology and data and change was going to happen, and it was an idea that everyone could agree with. I think now, three years later, two and a half years later, I think it's a reality that's at our front door. So I think like the biggest difference is it's ready. And now, as you see the climate and the money coming in and the changes in the Arizona law firms, which we talked about, yeah, the idea of this law firm ownership. And I remember at the time I said, uh, it's no longer a, a legal issue, it's a political issue. It's like grandma's sitting there in prison and somebody can't get her out. And there's going to be enough of those things happening around the world, around the country, where that senators and politicians are going to start getting calls saying, how can we fix the court system? We've got to let non-lawyers in. So since that day, Arizona's now done it. You've learned a lot about it. I know you know a lot about it. So that's, that's I think, the biggest change between now and then is that that idea has now become a reality. And So it, it seems like on the political side, the, the thing that always seems to speed up innovation in the legal industry is the access to justice, right? That becomes, that's becomes the main talking point. Now, 
what I'm wondering about is that why is it that the legal industry is almost notorious for being slow to embracing new technology and evolution and so on, probably more so than a lot of other, other industries. Why? Yes, it's human nature. Um, it's like until your life's in danger, a lot of people just don't move. You know, the center mass doesn't move, especially the people that are rich and fat and don't have to. You know, so you got the professional services industry as a whole that make a ton of money being mediocre at it. You know, and uh, until now, we had this Chinese wall around us that said you had to be a lawyer to come in and change anything. So that limited the pool of players. And so whenever that happened, it allowed that bad behavior to continue. Now, I want to call this out early because I'm sure there's going to be someone listening to this that'll hear about Rule 5.4, what's happening in Arizona and other markets and say, hey, this is going to be a ways off. I don't have to worry about this in my lifetime. Perhaps the big four accounting firms, they're going to be the ones that are going to be the targets for this. It's not going to be my plaintiff's practice. What are your thoughts on this? They're going to be out of business. The people thinking that this is going to be out of their lifetime. So, you know, I, I talked to you about this before recently, but I was in New York. Uh, I've been going to this conference for eight years now. Litigation finance, all Wall Street. My CFO goes every year, but I, I went six years ago was the last time I went. This time I went back because I was saying, you know, it's the first time I don't need anything from any of these guys. I didn't need funding. I didn't need cash. I didn't need, you know, I was just kind of wanting to feel the market out. Well, you know, it's, it's the same guys standing in the room, but it's the same guys that were at WeWork when they thought it was an interesting technology. It's the same guys, the benchmark capitals that you saw at Super Pumped and on all these movies. And that part I thought was interesting. I'm finally realizing that the same players that are investing in tech startups that disrupted the whole world are the same guys investing in litigation finance. Like the same emerging markets, the same groups, and the same people, like individuals. And so when you got those guys sitting in a room, and then you give them the ability to now start a law firm. So here's the distinction between a DC law firm that everyone used to know about, the ability to have a DC law firm with a non-lawyer partner, and a ABS alternative business structure out of Arizona. ABS actually allows a corporation to own part of a law firm. So now you don't have the what Wall Street calls the type one problem, where there's an individual that you rely on, that guy dies, your deal dies. You can have a corporation. So they think it's going to take forever. I know guys in Wall Street with more money than everyone listening combined, you know, like Wall Street has, and they already have their own ABS systems that they own completely. So the ability to execute is no longer dependent on the lawyers understanding these models. They're already trying to rip and replace and understand how it works. So here's kind of a layup. What's their interest in this altogether? In the legal industry, in a law firm? The biggest thing that I heard there that really resonated with me was uh, some of the biggest players, some of the guys that got the biggest returns out of the group. One of the biggest players made 37% of the market this year, right? Their hedge fund. And they charged 3 and 30, which is much more than the typical 2 and 20 model that most of these guys charge. And they're like, but they can. But you know what their strategy is in litigation finance? It's not to understand it. It's not to like do their due diligence. They just throw every... 10 to $50 million deal on the table, they'll throw five to 20 million behind it. Because the entire market, they say, is one of the most overpriced, undervalued investments that you can make in the entire world right now. So like the price on capital is the highest price on capital. To borrow money as a lawyer, you have to pay more than anybody else. The worth and the asset is just undervalued. So you're getting so much more return on your capital with no risk. And so they're willing to just throw all the money in the world at it. It's the best investment there is. And I say that in the terms of, of Wall Street, where there's limited things you can put a lot of money into. You got basically like four things. You got commodities, you got stocks, you got bonds, you got real estate. Outside of that, what can you put $100 million in, into over and over again? You got the U.S. market, billion-dollar tort market, you know, or half a trillion-dollar tort market, so excuse me. 
And then you've got the international arbitrage market and the commercial market. So like, it's a huge, huge space. So this was interesting to me. I think when when I first read, there's one statistic that I think really opened my eyes to this because usually when you see private equity, hedge funds, and so on get involved, it's in very fragmented industries. Like you see this in the dental industry in the 1990s. It's a, it was a $190 billion industry. Um, and they started buying up these dental practices in the form of like DSOs. But legal is a much bigger industry than, than dental. I mean, it's a $390 billion industry. And what was interesting to me is that there's not a single law firm in the world that generates more than 1% of gross legal fees paid annually. So like that level of fragmentation, I mean, not, not a single one. I mean, there's there's law firms, like you know, a firm that will do $3 billion in annual revenue isn't generating 1% of gross legal yeah. fees annually. Kirkland Ellis, yeah. biggest law firm in, in the country. I know the guys, because they're, they're basically the firm behind most of the biggest like SPAC deals or litigation finance deals. Anybody that's doing something crazy in, in the M&A world or the finance world is usually using a guy from Kirkland. It's insane. There, every other industry where you have a huge opportunity, somebody conglomerates, someone grabs market share. And my way of saying it to Wall Street is it feels like it's one of the, like, the last frontiers when it comes to the investing in certain industries. It's like, what else is there that's still this behind, that's worth this much money, that no one has came over and goes, hey, we should probably figure that out. So I want to talk about, I guess there's two sides. So we can get out of the way, like obviously all the downsides of it. Yeah. And someone says, hey, what happens when all this capital comes into an industry? And the reason why Rule 5.4 exists, really preventing non-lawyer firm ownership was this idea that if you bring in outside capital, outside investors, that law firms could prioritize profits over providing great service and caring for their clients. There's probably some truth to that because you see it in the dental industry and what happened with the DSO model. That's lawyers being lawyers. That, that battle's done. <laughs> ABS is out. You can argue all you want. It's done. They have a way in. It's legal in Arizona, regardless of whether it should be or not, or the ethical rules. Like, Wall Street doesn't care. There's too much money. We all know that. Let's all back up and stop trying to lawyer this up. That's an excuse not to pay attention. That's kind of how I look at that whole conversation. If you're not realizing that this is just the truth and reality of it, you know, if you want, if you want truth, go talk to some of the guys I've been talking to. There's too many hundred billion dollar funds now that are now completely committed to going after the space. What do you think needs to happen? What's the tipping point where you just know, okay, now it's game over, right? Like meaning, I know it was legalized in Arizona, but you know, it's gotten shot down in some other markets. There's some resistance from, you know, from the various bar associations. But you know, when push comes to shove eventually, you, know, you, you speed up a long enough time scale, you say, okay, we're there. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's always interesting for lawyers to think that the bar controls the pace of this. That's why I say it, the bat battle's over. It's the ability to deploy, to deploy capital. That's what's avoided it in the past. Like, one, they had to have the ability to structure the deal. Now that hurdle's done. So now it's, how can I give money to somebody and treat it like an asset? Like, how do I go from now to a piece of real estate, right, where I have comps and, like, market analysis and, and you know, valuation metrics? And so right now, everything that they're talking about is duration risk because you factor in, like, all right, what is the litigation worth? You know, how likely are you to succeed? But the weirdest thing in law is like, is it next year? Is it two years out? Is it three years out? Like, is that time risk, duration risk? But the bottom line is that the thing they can't solve for yet is there's not a stock exchange where I can like go in and buy a portfolio of companies that all have the same 10K, you know, the same finances. Uh, I had one guy talk to me and said that he's invested in every shitty market he's ever seen that was sizable and in a good opportunity. And lawyers have the worst accounting and the worst books and the worst standards he's ever seen in his life. He's been doing it for 30 years. So it says something a lot about a very smart industry, right? It's like, guys, and, and I, I honestly believe it's because we have such a just cause and what we do as lawyers 
that it justifies to people that we can avoid spending time with the business even more so. Like we we have a, a strong enough reason to justify being uh, negligent, I guess, to, to actually operating the business. I don't think it's right because I think it's counterintuitive. You actually hurt your clients doing that. But the bottom line is the fact that this industry is so big with such smart people and those books and the businesses and the finances are so bad when this guy's seen a lot of every shitty industry he's ever invested in. I think that's really the impetus right now. The, as soon as somebody can standardize the way you can look at the business of law and be, give Wall Street the ability to say, all right, deploy capital, unlimited, then that's when you get into becoming a commodity. The idea of derivatives, which is going to be, you know, that's when you get into the Goldman Sachs coming in and not the small funds. When I say small funds, the $100 billion funds, mm-hmm. the trillion dollar funds. Now, I already know this is going to be the type of podcast that is going to bother a lot of people. But it was interesting to me, like, so at our conference this year, this is the first time this year as compared to any previous year, I was incredibly surprised. I mean, we had probably over a dozen VCs or hedge funds in attendance. And you would think, why would they care about like a legal conference or a law firm growth conference? Like, what's the draw for them? And I mean, you know this, because you, you know a lot of these people. You're in these meetings with them. You're at these various industry functions. They're like chomping at the bit. Yeah. One of the, I had a lot of conversations around this because we were up, up there speaking to a lot of them. And uh, you know, I know you, and I, I was hearing this impression of the industry. Because you hear some of the early adopters in litigation finance, and they talk about going to Vegas. They talk about going to parties with politically incorrect situations going on. And many other forms of incorrectness going on. And they see that, and, they, and, and the, the, the analogy the guy gave me was, listen, I go and I talk to the biggest company in legal services company that just got purchased. You probably know some who, who they are. And they're like, you sit down with the, the CEO and what's going on? And he's like, I just came from the CEO of McDonald's, and the CEO from Deloitte, right? And you look at those operators and you compare them to the biggest service vendors and, and service providers in the space of legal, and they're wanting more, bigger multiples. He's like, we can't stomach it. And so some of those early adopters, they would go to the conferences and they would go see how those trial lawyers acted. And they were like, what the fuck did we just do with our money? Like, we gave that guy $10 million. Like, they were the first guys to do it long ago. I asked him, I was like, well, what happened? He was like, well, I sold to somebody else and made 33% AR. I was like, okay, well, then it sounds like early is okay as long as it keeps going. Uh, Wall Street never loses. You know, so before your conference came, I was like, the ones I talked to at least, I said, listen, here's the thing. It's like, I'm going to be part of it. My buddy throws it. Like, I want you to see that there is a new way of thinking. There are people coming into the space realizing that being a good operator and understanding real good business principles and promoting that exist. And so I was like, the very least you can get, you can feel a little different about the industry if you come to see a professionally ran real business conference. So the, the ones I came, that I spoke to, that's, that's kind of the, the reason for coming. One, and then two was, you know, they want to learn who they can trust. Like who's going to build this industry, who's going to help them actually figure out how to standardize and deploy more capital? Because I think, as you know, there are very few people that have big influence and the mindset, you know, to be able to actually work with Wall Street, have the professionalism, the know-how, and be able to execute. Well, and I would say, like, for a firm owner that's listening and thinks this is like a doomsday scenario, I would actually challenge them to think about it from the other perspective. Because let's say you wanted to sell your law firm today, 
there's not many buyers. I mean, when you really look at it and saying, well, what could you sell this firm for? Well, it really would depend on what another law firm would be willing to pay for it. And that's not gonna be the same type of buyer that you would see is it would be a, a non-lawyer or a hedge fund or a VC or anything like that. I mean, that obviously opens it up to much more potential, but let's say you don't ever wanna sell the firm and you just want to be able to inject some cash flow into it, right? You wanna be able to get some capital to be able to invest in more infrastructure, hiring, marketing, whatever it is. I mean, what are your options today? They're not great. Yeah, they're not at all, typically. Um, and this this is where I'll give you know Morgan a lot of credit. And you know, I got I got a lot of shit saying that he was broke compared to Wall Street <laughs> after the conference. Yeah, and, and I'll send him the soundbite because you know we're friends. But it's interesting that he goes out and he actually has a revenue model to like a PI firm. But what he does is he understands that he can go in, he can take his brand, he has processes, and, and he's going to invest in that. But beyond someone like that, that actually is going to make a play at possibly going public or, you know, I don't know what his future is going to be. I think that's a pretty obvious route. But beyond a guy like that, there aren't buyers. Like unless you're, you got a guy that you can train, you put his name on the door and you hope someday he takes over and, and then what? Like you hope he gives you some money? I don't know. You know, there's no golden parachute. You know, there's no succession plan. Yeah. Well, and I mean, unfortunately, many law firms aren't very investable. I mean, you really think about it. Let's say you were from the other side and you could invest into another law firm. You look at that firm and say, all right, well, you might look at their case inventory, then you'd look at it and say, all right, well, how are they bringing cases in the door? And if they're investing in something like, I mean, as an example, Google pay-per-click, let's say they're putting in $100,000 every month to bring in cases. Well, if you're an investor, I don't know how much value you'd place on that because you could say, well, why don't I just take my 100,000 a month yeah. and I'll just generate the cases. Why would I pay a premium for that? So it's really what, inventory and then uh, then human capital. Yeah, and you've said this before, and I'm gonna preach your, you know, what you preach all the time, but it's in the end, it's all a brand. And in legal, there isn't brand. Right, you got a bunch of last names on the door that no one understands. And I always talk about how when I went to law school, you know, I didn't intend on being a lawyer, but that doesn't really matter. I was like, think about that day before you went to law school and try to think about a single lawyer that you could name if you've never been in a lawsuit. I couldn't name one. I couldn't name the guy on the cover of the yellow pages. Kind of date me saying that. But until I actually became a lawyer, did I, and even now, like I know very few the ones I work with, you know, the ones that you know, but people think they have a brand. I think it's fascinating that we still put names on the door. Because I just, I just feel like that's just inherently making you only as worth you know, your face and your time. You know, I, I'd like to challenge the idea of changing, putting the name on the door. I've been talking about taking mine off for a long time. But I think that the problem is that there's too much emphasis on the individual, people knowing them personally, and then trying to anchor your business around your own performance and your own reputation. That's going to die with you. So until you have a brand, you know, process and standards that you can actually step away from the firm and your firm doesn't die. Your business can't die without you or else you don't have a business. Well, and it's interesting because if you look at pretty much any other industry, when you're looking at, let's say, selling that, you know, that business, you look at EBITDA and you look at what, what would drive an increase in valuation. Like, how do you make your business more valuable? And a lot of it comes in and says, okay, well, is cash flow predictable, right? Are there metrics? Like, could, you know, essentially, if, if you were to step away, if something ever happened to you, would that business be able to carry on without you? Is there a predictable way around bringing in new business? Are there processes in place? Like, all of those different things. Because if that exists and you can hand somebody that, Wonderful, right? That yeah. becomes a very valuable asset and a much higher multiple. And if it doesn't exist, you say, all right, well, what are the chairs worth? What are the desks worth, right? Maybe you, you've got a great lawyer. They can come with us. Wonderful. And you take the inventory. But outside yeah, it's of like that- It's like a bankruptcy model. Yeah. <laughs> You're just selling for parts and pieces. Right. You know, scrapping it. It's like scrap metal. No, it goes back, and I'll use a very vintage business term. I mean, it's people process technology, right? So people invest in that. You've got like founders or people that are going to do something that, that you just believe in. 
And then after that, when you have a scaled company, it becomes what processes do you have in place, and is there any intellectual property? Is there any transferability in like uh, like when it comes to this platform matches other competitors in the market? Wall Street's looking at the entire market. They're like, they would play nice. We can buy up. We can conglomerate, and that's the idea of the law firm. Like, there's no one percent market owner in the in the legal business. Well, why is that? Because I can't buy 14 law firms and then merge them all together because they're all chaos. So the moment that we start standardizing how we operate, that's the moment Wall Street starts saying, maybe I buy a bunch of law firms. Maybe I buy a bunch of services that now integrates into all the law firms. Maybe I buy pizzas and chunks. But the standards have to come, and that's why I think the fact they're at our front door doesn't mean doomsday's today. The fact that they're at our front door means we just hit go on the race. And they've got about two or three years before they're going to figure it out. So then transitioning, let's talk about Stellium. You know, kind of your role in all this. Yeah, Stellium was a idea that birthed out of necessity a little bit. We're at a point in our career where I was looking at maybe starting a handling firm, litigating a lot more, doing a lot more mass torts, and so we're going to rebrand the firm. Well, about midway through, we had uh, some reorganizations in some of the companies. We had like you know our index center kind of getting reorged, our marketing center, marketing company. We're trying to decide who we we're going to be when we grow up. You know, it's one of the growing lessons when you're talking to Wall Street. You're talking to them as a lawyer, but if you're different. Like, you know, I run very differently in my operations and how my P&Ls look and all that. And I started realizing when you have a marketing company within your firm, when you have your tech company within your firm, you look very different than all the other deals they've looked at. So we were kind of deconstructing that and like really reconsidering how we organized. Going back to, let's give them the standards that they expect in Wall Street, if that's who we're talking to. And so we were, we were in the middle of that and I was talking to this guy, David uh, Color Jar. He was in like YC. I think I met him a long time ago. So we, we sat down and ironically, small world. This was always a small world when it comes to the people that are you know, in like entrepreneurship world, the tech world, whatever. We sit down, and he was roommates uh, with a guy from, I won't name their name, but one of the competing firms that, that also raises a lot of money with finance. They, they sold a, a company that invested in portfolios and stuff like that to, to a public company. You probably know their names. But he was roommates with them, and he was like, I was telling this whole story what we wanted to do. And I said, listen, like we've got the firm. I know we just hired you to brand something, so we gave you a lot of money. And I was like, but we have these multiple companies. And it's like, I don't feel like setting core values for Johnson Firm. That's not really where we're going. I was like, is it crazy to invest in a vision before you have a company? Does anyone do it? He's like, maybe one in a thousand, one in a hundred. He was like, but do I think it's the way to go? He's like, yes. He was like, that's kind of, he's like, he gave me the jobs analogy, the like, why first? Like, we don't sell parts and ports, and how do we do it? We make them cheaply, and why do we do it? You know, to make money or whatever. It's like, well, why do we do things? We we want the world to be seamlessly infused with technology and to make humanity better by integrating life with tech. And what do we do? Beautiful products and when you know that kind of thing. Usually, when you say that stuff and you're not Steve Jobs, people kind of you know stand up <laughs> and, and walk out. <laughs> well, I get that. Not when you're paying them. No. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, lawyers tend to look at me like I'm crazy. Uh, and they probably are listening to me like I'm crazy now. But so we decided to say, all right, you know what? Let's do something crazy. And and we we sat down, we went to dinner, we hit pause on the whole thing and said, uh, let's just go eat, eat, eat a nice meal, have some talks. And so we started talking about it. And he was like, he made the analogy. He goes, all right. So it kind of feels like if we were a solar system, it seems like if, if like John's firm was the earth, right? It's, it's rotating, revolving around the sun. Really what we needed to find is like that, that source of heat, the sun itself. So no one lives there. No one's walking around, none of the business is there, but everything is orbiting, right? And so if you have a collection of companies that doesn't have a sun, 
you can't find like that vision. You can't all align. You can't make those micro decisions with core values and everything together. How about we define that sun? And then we come back and we look at what companies are, are sitting here, like the tech company, the marketing company, the law firm. I was like, all right, I love that idea. I was like, let's do that. And so that's kind of where selling was born. It was like this idea that the future of legal is in desperate need of leadership when it comes to technology, business, processes, disruption. And our goal of Stellium is to not just do that and be that ourselves, but to find strategic alliances, entities that all resonate with us so that we can kind of be part of that change and lead in that change. Because otherwise, if we don't find that, that group of people, then we're just going to be sitting around waiting for Wall Street to find them. And that's inherently opposite to what we do. Like, do you want the guys investing in all the corporations and the pharmaceutical companies running point on how we're going to change our industry? Because that's what happens if we all don't drop our egos, make some friends, and actually do something about it. And on that note, I mean, I know you're a big data person. Obviously, data is very important, but there's not a whole lot of data transparency in, in the legal industry and also not a whole lot of just data sharing. And I think that creates a lot of friction. Yeah, it's, it goes back to that scarcity mindset, I think. I don't know why this industry is so filled with people that have this scarcity fear. You know, they think there's only a limited number of business. And if, if I tell them my secret sauce, we may run out of car wrecks. I, I've never thought of things that way. I think that we as an industry are going to scare ourselves out of business if we continue to do it. So it's one of those things where some of the smart lawyers, I think, to me, like some of the things that you've talked about, some of the guys that, you know, we've been speaking with and aligned with, they're willing to do it. It takes that vulnerability. It takes, I guess, a certain amount of success and confidence to be like, no one's going to kill me. I will never run out of a good idea, you know, and a, and a pivot and a change into a market. Like, I don't, I can share all my ideas and I'll still have more. Good luck executing. So, so finding those kind of people, I think there's enough of them. That's kind of why that that whole idea of of the stellium. I think, uh, yeah, you're doing some stuff with the, with your ventures side of things too. But I think there's enough people like us that we can get together and understand the importance of the the movement and the changes and be a part of that and pull Wall Street in as friends because if you don't want them as enemies, I know that. Well, that's that's my thought as well. I think there's there's a life path here where you embrace the change that's coming and you also leverage it as a way to be able to grow and move ahead and be able to serve your clients and your communities at a higher level. And then there's the other path of resisting that change and not benefiting from any of the innovation or any of the technology. And it's quite simply just becoming either stagnant or going out of business. And there's a lot of great innovation. I mean, it's interesting. Like, and you look at it even from like a customer service client experience standpoint. In other industries, let's say Amazon, right? You get consistent updates on the status of whatever product you're buying. Like, I mean, you get text alerts, email alerts. You can go online, check it anytime. And somehow, I mean, it could even get you something within an hour, right? Which is amazing. Now, if you take that, let's say you look into the legal industry, you know, consumers generally don't associate working with a law firm as a pleasant experience. I mean, they don't associate it as one of saying, well, I get consistent updates. I know where, you know, the status of my case consistently. It's not a very desirable position to be in. So then you look at it and say, okay, well, outside capital comes in. You got outside companies as well, Fortune 500s. They take all of that technology and they say, hey, we're going to make this industry much more efficient. So you as a law firm could either benefit from that technology and say, hey, we're going to deploy this in our own firm and provide consumers and our clients exactly with like, we'll meet them where they are. Or you can say, I think we're good. We're not going to use any of this. You know, it's just same. It's like the same debate. This is actually kind of yeah. silly when people were resisting the internet and they're resisting social media and they're resisting all these different things. And, and you see what happens when you go down that course. And I'll probably offend a lot of people with this, but I'm going to say it. The problem and the reason why we'll never get the whole community to endorse and embrace this fact is because most of them are hacks. And in the end, 
all of those guys will be a commodity. Mark Lanier talks about a trial school where the good lawyers are like, most lawyers try to hide from the bad facts. Like the good ones try to like get in front of them and the great ones make the bad facts good facts. And I think that's the situation right now is like there's this disruption, there's this fear. But if you can actually rise above that and say, the only way that big change happens, big opportunity comes is when the whole world gets turned upside down. That's what's here. Those guys that can recognize it, we can argue about till the cows come home. If you have no idea of what to do with about it and you just are too scared, then you can just talk about it not happening. That's just not reality. But if you face reality, all you should be thinking about is how do we either align with somebody, get in front of it? Because right now, the people that are, the reason why Wall Street isn't grabbing like a Google CEO or whatever to just come in and take over is because we aren't commodities yet. Most of the lawyers here, they're experts, they're, they're skilled, they're knowledge, they're needed. Um, you can't have a law firm without them. Like there, There's a lot of reasons why this can't happen yet. But eventually, lawyers are going to shift to being hyper-valuable like with their expertise, their ability to go to court, their consultancies, like the business lawyer, all the things that, that make lawyers intelligent that we learn in law school, like those things will be immensely more valuable. Now the paper pushers or the people that are just in there doing things that technology can do for you, mm-hmm. those will all become commoditized. I mean, so you'd say like the ones that become more valuable are specialized, great trial lawyers, perhaps even great operators in many respects, right? The ones that build brands. I mean, that in itself, I mean, the value there goes up because it is obviously much more unique and there's a greater demand for it. And then everybody else really does become a commodity. Yeah, I know you've, you've spoken to like the guys like Mark Lanier. What he does for litigation when he goes and has a billion dollar verdict. Like how valuable is that? Right now, nobody pays him for that. Like if you're not working with him, if you just have a case that happens to be related to it, I don't give him nothing to that, right? When in the new world, like you, be, you become that expert and it doesn't have to be on that size. It can be within your state, you know, whatever's happening. You know, you become the go-to guy for, for whatever's happening there and you get paid for it and it becomes very valuable. So let me ask you this. Let's say you're, you're listening to this podcast. You're worried, okay, I'm, uh, maybe I'm going to be a commodity. I'm not going to survive. What do you do? What are your, kind of your next steps to avoid extinction and, and just to remain competitive? I think that the only thing you have to do to survive, and it really depends on your risk profile, is understand it's coming and understand what your role is going to be in it. Are you going to lead in the change? Do you have the ability to? If not, who do you align with? What change do you want to see, I guess, in the future? Go find them. Quit your job. Go work for them. You know, do what you can. Like, do the what Tony Fidel did when uh, he was in General Magic. You know, sleep in the doorstep. Like, I look at it like the tech industry. Like, that's how much you should make. Want to make sure that you survive. You really want to be a lawyer? It's time to prove it. The future of law isn't Grandpa's law, because most of the time that's where you're working at. So I think you need to look around and, and think about that, and then think about is it time to make a move. What's interesting is I, I even put yourself in the position of of your clients, right? I mean, in their experience working with other brands and other companies and the expectations they now have, like they don't want to wait. They want a great experience. They want consistent updates. I mean, they want, again, it's almost like they want things on demand to, to an extent because of what our experience is when we're using DoorDash or we're on Amazon or, or whatever it is or Instacart and so on. You know, sometimes there's forced innovation where it's like, or forced adoption rather. When you look at, let's say what happened in 2020 with COVID, everybody goes to Zoom or not everybody, but the ones that didn't probably didn't you know survive very yeah. long. And it's yeah. like, well, what do you do? Everybody's at home and you know, you have to have a way of being able to interact with clients. Then you have like Zoom depositions and you know, you start to evolve because you had to. And I think that's a tough place to be because at that point you're sometimes too late, right? Like whenever you're forced to do it, that seems like, you know, about a year or two late. Yeah, it's one of those things that and I talked about this briefly, but I, I just knew we couldn't get into it at the summit. But I think about job titles in our industry as a good example of niching down expertise in a very different way to think about it. It's like 
you have two job titles in the legal space, lawyer and paralegal. These are billion-dollar companies. You know, you're talking about two job titles. It's crazy. They might add an adjective to it, intake attorney, senior paralegal. What does that even mean, right? So when it comes to like real job titles in normal businesses, like they are very diverse. I think that another way to look at the practice of law is are you a litigator? You know, that's one way. Are you transactional? But then are you an attorney that practices in the business of law? So there's going to be a lot of specialty needs that I think kind of happen at law firms, but we just don't identify them. Like who's an operator that's translating the business capacity that's driving like process behind litigation. So those type of roles are going to start fleshing out. Um, so I think specialization in that nature is, is very interesting. Anyways, I think there's a lot of opportunity for lawyers. I just think they'll look very, very different. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, let's say we weren't talking about a law firm, but you look at any business in general and you'd say, hey, we want to implement consistency, predictability, and scalability. How do we do that, right? And as you start to scale an organization, you've got everybody from the demand generation side, which helps to bring in new business and actually get the phone to ring. Then you've got to be able to capture that demand and convert that. Then, you, have, of course, you have to do the work, you know, and there's the processes around that. Then you have to analyze the data and you have data ops. And you just, you see this in like this, like very similar structure at, at very successful Fortune 500 companies and Inc. 500 companies and so on. But it's very interesting. You've got like the various departments, you've got the managers and department heads of those departments, and then you've got the C-suite as well. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's how a company scales because they consistently have data and great insights and they make decisions based on those metrics. And you know what's crazy? Like you look like Intel, right? Andy Grove, one of the most prolific CEOs ever, he ran it for 40 years across the Silicon Valley, you know, tech bubbles and the going from the chip processors all the way to everything else he did. He wrote, literally wrote the book, you know, like high output management. You look at his makeup of his like 10,000 or 40,000 person company, right? And 25% of the people at that company did the thing or the, the execution of the product. You had 75% of the people there were in business services, finances, you know, marketing, sales. So you look at the makeup of a law firm and what I find fascinating is where the lawyers people doing the product, doing the service, are the entire firm usually. So to your point, like, how do we shift that entire dynamic of running the business when some of the most prolific operators spend 75% of their resources and people and process and the surrounding business part of, of, running, a law, of running the business? We need to practice law in the same way. So then, I know we mentioned the data earlier. I'm curious, what is that friction around data and, and the sharing of data? Like, what are we talking about specifically? What, what, what types of data? So, you know, I, I guess shifting from the kind of the generalization last time we talked, right, about just the data availability, the fact that it's not private, it's out there, right? Everyone has all the data. But like what kind of things specifically? So, well, the discussion in legal really boiled back down to what, what kind of data do we have and what kind of problems do we have when it comes to like data continuity, data standards. Right now, every law firm, I think the root problem is every law firm is the source of truth. They carry the data from the client journey beginning to the end. And then every single law firm has a different way to do it. And then along that journey, we decide we're going to let vendors like medical record guys, Here, here's the data, can you just give it back to me? And every time we pass it off, we lose some of it. And then you get to the very end and we try to coordinate. <laughs> you know, these hundreds of multiple chains of custody that all just got deteriorated along the way. And so there's a few ways to approach, like I guess, data standards. And it's going to be from... I'm not sure it'll be from the lawyer's side of things. Like it may be from the services side. You know, like what what people can now start linking the dots and creating a reason for lawyers to come to them to standardize. You know, I know at the very end, like to your point, settlement administrators, they try to do it, right? When you get to resolution, mass settlements, 
their big thing is like, how do we get all the information from these firms? Like that's a that's a cottage industry right now, right? Um, I know Wall Street just made a big purchase there. So you start seeing these places like at the beginning and the end of litigations, like marketing guys, they standardize the information. They just don't have a reason to make it good quality because then they distribute it amongst lots of lawyers. But I do think we attach those endpoints. But I think the lawyers being the carriers and the keepers of the information, every law firm being different, is part of the big problem. So how do you get people to online, right? Because no one wants to share. Necessity. <laughs> you know, my personality, brute force, of course. Or, or, uh, they'll, no. or they'll say, hey, um, that, that data is, is not something I feel comfortable sharing, or there's data privacy laws, you know, th- those sort of things. I mean, obviously someone's going to you know, <laughs> have concerns around that. And you say, hey, privacy doesn't exist. So, so elaborate okay. on that. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Lawyers will say that. And then I'm going to, going back to my point, you have vendors that do your medical record pulls. What do you call that? You give them information. Oh, but you, do you give out your, you know, the, their name and their number and like HIPAA and you do it nine times already. You just do it in a way that everybody else does it. And then you don't like the way this is being done. Like it, it's the same thing. So like, I just think it's a mindset shift. Now, one, I think that's the systemic, I guess, echo chamber we have as lawyers. Like, you know, we can't do that, but we already do. You know, nobody really calls it out. And then I think the only thing that happens to change it is somebody with enough money, enough influence is going to come enforce it. You know, because it's not going to be the clients because they, they have a case and they kind of go away. Right now, it's how the, the industry works when it comes to who's interested, unless it's a show, you know, about not really being a lawyer. And then you have uh, law firms that, that have that, that very just cause that they're focused on. But, you know, again, it's, they only control that individual law firm's less than 1% part of the market. And so to me, there's only one player getting involved now with enough brute force capacity to actually make a change. Like I said, it's Wall Street. They've had unlimited money. And they're not going to do it alone. They're going to do it with somebody. And my, my pulpit now and why I started telling them what we're going to start talking about is like who is willing to have those discussions with them to start thinking about this industry very, very different. You know, start thinking about it like a business. Start thinking about it in a way that's going to make this more efficient from a customer service and a customer experience perspective. And do it from the side of law firms and what we stand for, having a say in that conversation. Now, I do also want to say for the people listening that if you come across like a savage, like I will say, AJ, you, you have a heart here, meaning that there's, of course, there's the, you know, the business side of being able to scale and drive you know, innovation, but also as a lawyer yourself, I think you want to do good for this industry as opposed to what you might see with someone coming out of Wall Street. Yeah, and I appreciate the point because I can come across uh, very uh, you know, incendiary, I guess, about how, how I th- I'd say it's going to happen. I guess that's, that's partly frustration because what I'm talking about is really like, preserving the nature of, of what we do. If we don't do this, we're going to lose all of that. Like Because the money in Wall Street and corporations and everyone that doesn't understand anything about why you became a lawyer will take over and make those decisions for you. And that can't happen. And so we've got to stop pretending like we have a choice, you know, because it's just too important. Now, and I've, to your point, I've been there. I've represented somebody. And when I call people hacks, it's like, I'm a hack as a lawyer. I'll say it, you know, that's, that's what I had to come to grips with. Like, and I think I'm good at everything, you know, I can be, you know, but then I, I just didn't like this idea of practicing on people until I became the best. And sitting in Arkansas, the reality was, I probably gonna, wasn't going to run across that case and become the next great trial lawyer across America, you know? And so I had to realize, like, what was I great at that was different? And so I'm not calling people's hacks to try to call them out and say that they just need to have the industry change completely and we have a bad purpose and a bad spirit of the industry. No, that's, I think the legal system is what protects like the American way, like right and wrong. Like when you have, you have children, like what, what laws do you want to have them grow up in? Like that's what society is, is our agreement on what's right and wrong 
and what happens when someone does something wrong, right? And lawyers protect that. So I think it's like the, it's a fight for freedom itself. So I have this, this vision, you know, and at least I believe that this is possible, that if lawyer-owned firms, if you can embrace technology, if you can embrace innovation, if you look at, you know, through your experience that you have with other companies, even outside of the legal industry and say, hey, you know what, that would work really well in our law firm. Let's, let's adapt, let's evolve, let's change and, and, and better meet the needs of our clients. I think that if every firm operated that way, then the only role I see Wall Street playing is just providing capital. Absolutely. You know, because then they would buy in versus buy out. And then, you know, these firms scale and then you have lawyer-owned firms, which I think is a great future. But unfortunately, there's, with many law firms across America, if not most law firms, the idea of, I mean, even launching, a, you know, putting up a Facebook page is a strange concept, <laughs> right? I mean, the, this idea of, of core values and culture, and, you know, and I mean, we still get emails even saying like, hey, you know, uh, running a law firm is not a business, right? It's a profession and, you know, all these things. And, and unfortunately, I mean, like, if you look back through history, because I was never a history person up until probably the last like five, six years. And then, you know, because you just start to see all these patterns, things yeah. repeat. And- I always you, say the, the future's in the past. It's all there. And it's like, you look at, okay, what happens in, you know, in, in the 1970s, Bates versus Arizona, it was the same conversation with the same resistance and the firms that were, did not adapt and start advertising. They were the ones that ended up struggling the most and ultimately went extinct. And then you, you fast forward to 2020, you've got the elimination of rule 5.4 in Arizona. You start to see more like the ABS structure, non-lawyer firm ownership. Who'd have thought you know, Arizona is the pioneer in the Arizona, it's always Arizona, right? Yeah. And yet it's the same resistance. It's the same friction. It's also, it's interesting, back in the 1970s, it was also about decreasing the, the access to justice gap, right? Because yep. that's always the thing that, that ends up driving the legislature. And it's then- the capital markets. It's America. It's, it's, like, it's like, let's let the market decide. If you let the market decide, you let everyone in, you, there becomes this capitalist, I guess, balance that happens and you get called out and you get- the best idea so, wins actually starts to happen. I mean, one could argue, this is kind of an interesting way to, to end this podcast on. I, I don't know, I think it's rule 5.5, perhaps. I could be wrong on this, but there's also, now talks about, you know, how, how lawyers, you license to practice in one market and you think, okay, now in a remote world, should that really be the case? Or should every law firm be able to serve clients in any market, right? And just be a national law firm. And there's a lot of people that think, hey, if I live in Arizona, or let's say I live in, in Wyoming or whatever it is, and I have a client, let's say in Florida, shouldn't I be able to, to serve them? Maybe, maybe we'll get there sooner than we think. Yeah, uh, talk to anyone that does enough business about this topic. And it, it gets fascinating to me. And I think one of the things I will want to challenge lawyers to do is just let's be candid and be honest with ourselves. I'll probably get a lot of shit for this, but it's if you're a big enough law firm, you're, you're signing clients up wherever you sign clients up. Some people decide they need a bar license when they file. Some people decide they never knew. You know, there's a lot of ways to get around. You have pro hoc guys, you have local guys. Like this, that idea is, is just misconstrued. There's national class actions already. It's been around for 20 years. You got national mass torts. You got a million ways to say, you know, watch me get through calls from a bar association after this. <laughs> but I'll say, well, let's go talk to every single lawyer you know, because that's just how it works. Um, so I go back to like, you know, that's, again, these are, these are hurdles and excuses, I think, to the reality of the world which is we live in a, uh, we used to talk about with the internet and marketing, like the ABA rules around marketing. And I used to like stress and strain over like, could I even comply on Twitter with advertising rules? I can't red stamp advertising on a tweet, you know, or put a disclaimer on it. We we're gonna have to be okay with not being sticklers. You know, like it goes back to that same thing too. It's like, we have so many just causes we fight for. Why did we lose our way on having our own just causes? Like it's okay for lawyers to stand for something. You know, it's hiding behind this. Everyone needs a defense so I can have a shitty client. You're still being a shitty person. You accepted it. You know, sure, everyone deserves a just representation, but there's a line. And I think the people fighting for those causes need to have them. And I think that's 
got to be more important than whatever these excuses are to not change and adopt it. So as we come to a close, I don't know if you remember your answer last time, but we always ask this, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? The only way to change the game is to do it differently. You know, I, I think the, the theme of this, this podcast is disruption. You know, Apple, whenever they first launched, then changed the world. You know, Jobs changed the world almost every year, almost as a CEO. And he did it in two words, think different. When this old school mindset, this legislative and political mindset, the attorneys are very similar where, where the past wasn't broken and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And nobody's needed and forced me to do it. But this future's coming. And if you don't think different, if you don't change the way you look at it, those guys are gonna get put out of business too. I wanna give a huge thank you to Anthony Johnson for taking the time to speak with us today. And I wanna thank you, yes you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Anthony Johnson, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com.